Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. I am Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I'm joined by Corey, my co-host from For Nutrient Sake. And today we have a special guest. Her name is Katie from Thriving Littles. And we're going to start by introducing Katie to the show. So she and I actually met, um, we met via Instagram randomly. I don't, I don't actually don't even know who started the messaging first, but we started messaging over DMs on Instagram and then realized that we both lived in Chicago. We both lived kind of close to each other and decided that we were going to meet up. And Katie had to refresh my memory on this because I thought we met up at a coffee shop, but she was telling me that, no, we actually met up at the farmer's market. And we met up at the farmer's market one day. And um, I, yeah, we kind of connected from there and hung out regularly and enjoyed coffee dates and Pilates. And she's just a really special individual. And she was really into, you know, healing um, healing inner trauma and respectful interactions and just living consciously. And I connected with her a lot over that. And so even though I left Chicago in March of 2020, we managed to stay in touch. And here we are today. And so Katie is the creator and founder of Thriving Littles. And she's an occupational therapist and coach who guides people home to themselves others, and the earth through the power of connection and embodiment. She works with children and adults on relational, physical, and spiritual healing and evolution through sensory and emotional regulation. She also has a passion for women's health, ancestral eating, nature, and her husband, Jay, and her super cute Chihuahua mix, Moose. So without further ado, Katie, welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Hello. I'm so thankful to be here. Thanks for that introduction. It's lovely. Thank you for joining us. Um, So we like to start each episode with um, a little tidbit. And um, since today we're going to be talking about respectful parenting, um, we wanted to start off with sort of a meaningful question. And um, we'll all take turns answering this. So um, if you could give us a childhood memory that gives you, that brings you joy and peace when you think of it? So I had a, um, our our grandparents had a house on a little lake in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. It's called Trout Lake. So that's what we always called it, going to Trout Lake. And it was just a magical little spot. It's a tiny little town and um, beautiful little lake. And they had a spring that led into the lake from the little cabin. And it started off as like a one room cabin and then kind of grew and, um, but just cool things like you could, you know, fish little frogs out of the spring and they would put like soda cans or, or beer cans and bobbing in the spring to keep them cold. And, um, 
this is always like a gathering with people around and um, lots of humor and um, a really neat place. So that would be mine. That sounds really magical. Yeah. Do you want to go next, Corey? Sure, I'll go. Um, I grew up um, on a farm for part of my childhood. My grandparents had a farm. My um, my dad's godmother had a farm. My cousins had a farm. Lots of our friends had farms. Um, every, not every, but a lot of the really beautiful memories that I have is just running around on the farms, um, you know, in the woods, playing with my cousins or our friends, um, or just exploring the barns, playing with the animals. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's that's what you're going to give your kids in a little bit too, right? That's the hope. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, my background scenery is not nearly as beautiful as what you both grew up with. But um, I lived in a regular suburb in Dallas, Texas. And um, but one of the things that I would do as a kid a lot is just ride bikes around the neighborhood and there was a, a, a nearby, a huge plot of land with horses. Um, and it was random because it was in the middle of the suburb and there were like, it was cornered by two busy streets, but you could get to it like through kind of like the back way. And I was obsessed with horses. And so I would pretend that my bike was a horse and that I was on a horse and that I would go and visit the horses and, um, I just remember like riding bikes around the neighborhood, pretending I'm on my horse and, you know, using my imagination and <laughs> those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, those were, those are some of my happy memories. It all sounds pretty similar, actually. We all enjoyed being outside, playing. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, animals or people that we enjoyed. That's pretty similar. I remember as a kid, I played for a long time. Like I remember being 15 and still playing, like playing like a child. I don't know (laughs) what that says, but. Not imaginative. I feel like maybe our version is like fantasy. Like what are we fantasizing about or imagining daydreaming? You know, it's like, so kind of cool to be in that space. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I almost feel like there's not enough time in today's modern world for just imagination. Yeah, just talking about like what we desire. It's like the most crazy wild things we desire. You know, I feel like it really can lift the state yeah. of our systems. That's so true. Normally people do that when they're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Those are like conversations people do when they go out for drinks. (laughs) Yeah. The synthetic version. (laughs) Anyway. um... Okay. So I did want to say, I don't know much about respectful parenting. Um, I'm really interested in it. I think that um, there's a lot that 
uh, my husband and I could be implementing into our parenting. Um, but I'm completely green. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to um, hear from both of you and kind of glean from you both. Um, okay, so let's just go straight in. Um, Katie, can you explain to me um, and anybody else who doesn't really know, um, what does the term respectful parenting mean? Yes. And I typically say I work with respectful interaction. So um, I am not practicing parenting. I'll say practicing because everyone's probably practicing all the time, but uh, at this time, so I say respectful interaction is kind of a broader term. So whether it's caregivers, professionals, of course, parents, um, but really thinking about how uh, it's a way of treating kids as just small humans who uh, are people generally. So instead of like objects or things to control or um, things that we need to have power over, it's treating them as small people who crave connection, structure, consistency for their developing brains alongside the room to explore and be free and cultivate authenticity for all areas of life. So kind of how can we help kids show up the way that they're meant to? How can we allow space for their soul to come alive with the safety, security to do so, and also the freedom to be who they are and explore. So that's a really, say like umbrella overview of what I think about respectful interaction. Okay, and what does this look like um, in practice, in real life? How does this actually apply? Yeah, so, and I would, Christina, I would love to hear your answer on this too. But in practice, I think it takes a heck of a lot of self-exploration or self-awareness. So I remember, and I grew up nannying starting at the age of nine. Like I was fully two or three jobs a day, sometimes in the summer, like I was fully invested in nannying. And at that time, I didn't really think about like any of this, right? It was just kind of, you show up, you play with kids and be with kids. And um, it, it took a lot of, when did I first start? I think it wasn't until my kind of early 20s when I was volunteering with kids with sensory disorders or not even, but trauma after um, they were in domestic violence shelters. And I started to realize like, wow, I'm getting really triggered by leading this group of children. And it felt so out of control. And I realized it was my own sense of feeling out of control. And then I would want to control them. So I was surprised at how much it activated or triggered me just being around certain situations. So um, I think in daily life, it's constantly thinking about how we're reacting and the, kind of the urges that we have to yell or threaten or bribe or control. And not that nobody should never do any of those things, but over time, it started to, I started to realize more and more as I learned all of this was that if we want kids who can navigate emotions down the road. So you think about the state of mental health now, um, a lot of people, a lot of us have challenges and struggles. And really being with kids, it became such an opportunity for every daily moment. So in the little daily interactions with interaction, environment, activities, 
there's so much we can do in daily life. And it's just little things often, like teeny little shifts that can make a big difference when it comes to helping kids understand what's going on in their body and their emotional world and know how to move through it in a way that feels helpful versus harmful. So uh, in practice, in real life, and I'll rely on kind of the two of you to take this further if you'd like, but I think about how do we get curious about what's going on for them? So instead of looking at behavior as misbehavior or bad or, uh, you know, they're being a bad kid, thinking about it as what are they communicating when the behavior pops up? Is it that they're giving us a hard time or manipulating or uh, kind of really testing limits, which can happen sometimes, the testing, the exploring? Or is it that they're having a hard time and there's something going on under the surface. So for example, if a kid is hitting, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe we think they're defiant or oppositional or aggressive, all these kind of ideas that pop up often initially, um, or just like this little rascal is giving me a really hard time tonight and can't handle it. But if we start to think about what's going on in the brain and the nervous system underneath, we start to learn that, oh, Maybe they're feeling out of control, or maybe they're feeling fear, or maybe there's something cooking under the surface that we don't know. Maybe they're overstimulated with life and demands, and then it's coming out as lack of impulse control and reactivity, and they're pushing little brother or whatever it is that's coming up with the physicality. So in daily life, we're actually shaping their ability to develop what I call a regulation muscle. So instead of shutting down the hitting um, or, you know, sending them away or saying they're bad or you need to try harder next time, thinking it's intentional, thinking it's in their control, we're trying to shift to think about, okay, this probably might not be in their control if their brain is in what I would call survival mode or fight flight mode where they don't have tools inside tough moments. So even us adults in our most heated moments of anger and explosivity, we often, we can't think about things like, oh, I should take a deep breath, or I should ground in a room and look around, or I should pause. So it can be really hard to access the tools for even adults. So in ki- with kids in real life, it it takes a lot of, of patience and um, just thinking about, okay, how can I slow my own system that feels activated in order to show up for them and see them with positive regard versus see them as intentionally doing things that are really harming. So uh, the more that I worked with kids, I realized that I was kind of drawn to kids that were having a hard time. So even growing up, I'd end up nannying the hardest kids in town and uh, the ones with all the behavioral issues and all the challenges And it led me to get curious about so much that can be under the surface that we would never expect. So in all these different situations and all these different families and ways of being, you know, noticing what is helpful, what isn't helpful and trying to imperfectly act on that and do the best we can as adults in the moment. Wow. Um, Thank you so much for that answer. 
So Katie, Corey's question was, how does that look in real life? And I wanted to say a little bit about that, which was, I mean, your answer was absolutely (laughs) very thorough. Um, But I'm just thinking of my own family and my kids. And you're totally right about the looking and opening up our minds to um, looking at situations with curiosity. Um, So that's really big. And also this idea of, and this is really hard, but shifting our mindset around trying to control our kids and trying to get them to do things and viewing them exactly as you said, as like whole humans and working together with them. And I think part of this looks like letting their emotions, letting them express their emotions freely. And for a lot of us, this is really triggering because we as kids were not allowed to express our emotions freely. And so oftentimes, you know, we'll see a kid or a baby having a meltdown and our immediate reaction is we need to make it stop. We need to fix it instead of really letting that child process all of that. And there were a few other things that you said that I thought were really interesting, which was, oh yeah, um, giving kids the language. So a lot of times you mentioned the, you know, kids don't have the impulse control at this age and their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until they're 23 years of age. So to expect a three-year-old, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old to be able to fully express how he's feeling after a full day of school or, I don't know, um, you know, something that happened with friends, it's, I don't think it's a realistic expectation. And so then there's going to be, it could be that there are challenging behaviors that are exhibited And instead of seeing that as exactly like you said, instead of seeing that as kids that are being difficult or um, disobedient, viewing it as, okay, what could have happened or what connection is my child lacking that or what need, yeah, what need do they have right now? And viewing it like that versus, I guess, the traditional lens. Um, I don't know. That's a, just some thoughts. Yeah. I think that's such a, um, the need, the word need, my work has really evolved to. So as I worked in clinics with family, I work with whole families. So, you know, parents always in the sessions, we're all together in the meltdowns and the play and all the, all the things. And, um, I'd also go to schools and have home sessions. And so it's pretty integrated, and the more that I worked with families, the more that I was drawn to work with just adults or parent, parents or adults in general. So I even work with adults without kids at this point because, like you said, Christine, if we didn't have that space, emotional space uh, in childhood. So, you know, questions I, I ask are, what did joy look like when you were a kid? What did sadness look like? What did you learn about anger? Like, what, do you remember a time you were angry? as a kid and what was the response, whether it was at school coaching or like a team, um, at home. 
So there's a lot of pressure, I think, on parents specifically. And it's really looking at society at large to me because there's such an emotional phobia that we have. We have learned to toughen up and soldier on through. And I used to be a pro at this. Like I soldiered on through most of my life, like not feeling a lot at all. I mean, and I was, I'm a deep feeler at the core. So, uh, I know all about that. And, uh, so now my work is mostly with parents and adults at this time, the work I do with thriving littles at least. And it's using the same philosophies that I use with kids. So looking at the nervous system, looking at the brain, what signals uh, the body is telling us, what needs are there, and using that same type of relational healing to connect with parents or uh, you know people that are wanting to do this path and realizing, wow, this is really, really hard. As pure as my intentions are, as much love as I have, this is really, really challenging when you're trying to... Uh, notice your own behaviors and show up for a kid that is stressed or having a hard time. So I think in daily life, you know, it can look so different. And I see a lot of the limitations of not having, you know, support networks where we can get what I call co-regulation from others. So basically other people to hold space for you as a parent and other people to understand that sometimes things are just hard. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong every time. Uh, And having that emotional space to move through the emotional cycle. And I see emotion as sensation in the body. So if we are reacting, it means there's something going on underneath. So what I call dysregulation. Or, or we're over our capacity, we're over our threshold, and that's when you might be yelling or um, shaming or threatening. So it's outside of our value system. So in order to develop the ability to practice this respectful interaction, we need to be able to have support systems in place to help us widen that, widen that window that we can be who we want to be and show up in a way that feels regulated enough or feels like we can act in ways that we want to versus the ways that look really messy and not are not aligned. So I think in daily life for me, I think about, yeah, it is absolutely about what we're saying to kids and how we're showing up to kids, but more so I think it's the practice of in the little moments where you start to feel uncomfortable, we're attuning to that, we're noticing we're moving or breathing or trying to start in the little moments in real life versus the huge explosive ones that can feel so defeating. That makes sense. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about, you've talked to me before about the importance of environment and how important environment is and how it can impact kids and adults emotionally. Can you talk a little bit a little bit more about environment? Yes. So as environment, I think about the uh, the actual physical environment we're in. So home, surroundings, and then also uh, looking at the type of again support system. So first of all, the more I learn about the environment, just being nature, for example, or being outside. So the importance of 
helping our nervous system. So a lot of the work I do is brain and nervous system related at a a foundation. So uh, getting outside early, for example, with daylight and syncing with the circadian rhythm so that our body can regulate our arousal levels and our energy. And, um, and then from a sensory perspective, I think about when we're getting natural light and when there's natural visuals. So even looking at a tree or plants or uh, listening to birds, for example, the sounds of the natural world, it really helps to regulate our sleep-wake cycles. So uh, and the body input we're getting throughout the day. So the ways that we're moving, you know, you think about, which I'm sure you're well aware of that the ways that we used to live that were so movement oriented and now we're you know, on screens or on computers, sitting inside, spending time under artificial light. And, you know, we wonder why we have energy challenges. So I think the, uh, And I just moved back to Northern Michigan after being in Chicago for many years. And um, I definitely see as much as I love Chicago and it's, you know, an incredible city and I love the energy. There were parts of it that were really challenging for my own regulation. So it kind of, I think about it as we all have kind of animal bodies that we, uh, you know, as humans, we're kind of animalistic in some ways. So uh, just being able to be somewhere where I can like walk on the ground or be outside often and uh, have a lot of space and uh, the clean air, fresh water, things that are ex- so innate to wellness and uh, showing up the way that we want to again. So I think environments void of nature, natural light or if we're spending so much time indoors and there isn't a lot of connection to the earth and the natural rhythms, I think it can be so challenging to, you know, live a a vibrant way that we want to. So um, for me, you know, in Chicago, it was like I was eating all the right things, quote, or doing all the right things. But uh, there was a time that, you know, I was having health challenges and you know, whatever the root is, emotional wounding and trauma and, you know, who knows, but I do think that there's a big environmental aspect. And I think about that with kids often, like what environments do they need or what's most helpful for them? And are we as a society helping or hindering that? Right. So yeah, I would love your thoughts on that. Yeah. It makes me think of the conventional traditional school model and how kids are stuck inside under fluorescent lights for eight hours a day. Um, There's only a 45 minute, maybe an hour if they're lucky break to be able to go outside. And oftentimes when they are going outside, it's not on grass, it's on pavement. Um, And then they come home and sometimes if they have homework, they're stuck inside even longer. So you're, I mean, you're totally right. There's, there has definitely been this disconnect from the natural world and our kids are suffering the consequences. Um, so I think anytime, I don't know, for me personally, yes, my kids go to school. Yes, they are under artificial, you know, lights during the day. Thankfully they still have a decent amount of play and it's on grass. And, but when they come home, 
there is there is no homework. There is just prioritizing play. And whether that's riding your bike, whether that's playing soccer, you're taking off your shoes, you're going to be outside. Um, so yeah, there's definitely, I, I completely understand, um, what you mean by the importance of the environment. I don't know, Corey, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that we decided to keep our kids at home, um, for schooling is that we wanted them to be able to have plenty of time to play and explore and, um, be outside um, when they were in school, um, we chose a kindergarten program specifically because they spent half the day outside. Um, and there was like woods on the property that they would go off into and build forts in mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, and I know that my kids get pretty sour. And I mean, I personally get sour when. I'm, you know, stuck in the house all day, or if the weather is uh, gray or, you know, we're just kind of more sedentary. We all kind of suffer from that. Yeah, I start to feel crispy. I feel like like that's my somebody I just was talking to called it burnt toast feeling. <laughs> like if I'm, I'm spending so much time like glued on a screen and a lot of my work right now is with, you know, people on screen and I'm so thankful for it. And I connect with incredible people from around the world. And I definitely notice like the being inside and on the screen. It's like, whew, I need to regulate my crispiness today. I like that. <laughs> crispy. Mom, you're starting to get a little crispy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've briefly mentioned it, but Corey is in the middle of a huge life transition. She is moving from the city to farm. From and the suburbs. It's not really from, city. Okay. Well, from the suburbs to land. How could you give her some suggestions for supporting her family and herself as she goes through this transition? Right. So the other kicker is that it's not just a move. It's also a cross-state move, right? So we're taking our kids and ourselves away from all of our friends, a lot of our family. We do have my parents down there and my aunt. And my kids have a couple of friends down there, but for the most part, you know, we're leaving their homeschool co-op and all of their friends in the neighborhood. And I know that it's very difficult for them because my daughter today, my nine-year-old said, oh my gosh, mom, I'm never going to see this friend again. And I was like, okay, well, you are going to see them again because we'll make that a priority when we come back up to Maryland, but you're right. You're not going to see them as often. Um, So all that to say is it's more than just, you know, new location. Yeah, that's a big, I mean, just doing a move myself. Like, I mean, it's, I think it's bigger than even what I anticipated. (laughs) Like I continue to kind of process different things that, and, and so I think about, you know, with all your kids, like 
at all these different ages is kind of interesting to think. So some of these, you know, I'll kind of talk generally about things that I do to um, or often suggest with the, if we think about helping them process the move. So often I think adults, we tend to minimize or um, not really go into things that we think kids might. So for example, if, if we say like, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, like, no, like, it'll be fine. You'll, you know, see this friend, like, you know, you can face, you can FaceTime her or kind of pretending like everything's normal, you know? So, um, like we can, we can text her, we can email her, which is all true. Yes. But I think about the, even in society in general, just not having space to process transitions and the loss that comes with it. So whether it is moving or, uh, changing schools or, even just getting older, I think there's so much loss that can happen for kids, for parents or adults in their lives with just getting older and changes and life moving on that we often don't pause to think about. So I don't know if that resonates, but one thing that comes to mind as you're talking about this, Corey, is for a friend specifically, like a visual storybook almost of like, even if it's in a phone, like here's pictures of this, these friends that I met in Maryland or these people that I know or my neighbors, or maybe it is real pictures and you're super crafty and into that. I don't know what your free time looks like these days for that kind of thing. But, um, you know, thinking about making some type of tangible thing that they can bring of pictures of their school or pictures of their friends or, uh, pictures of something that they love to do. Like, I mean, that would be incredible. It's probably over the top and I don't see that one very much, but you think about for, even for us as adults, like having a picture book of a stage of life or uh, making it intentional, like witnessing their path in some way, like witnessing that time in Maryland and what that meant for them. And it also allows space for any but I would say grieving. So it's, of course, not losing a loved one, but there is little grief that pops up or loss in just changing and relationships that we won't be as close by or, you know, all the things that we don't really process often, but I think would be super helpful and can really model self-regulation, which is not that nothing bad ever happens or you pretend it isn't happening or you pretend the move's no big deal, but allowing space for the tough part of things, knowing that it'll help once we move through that, it helps to really move into the next stage and really appreciate and have gratitude for it all. So um, talking through a beginning. Oh, and then the other thing skipped ahead. Um, so one creating a regulating visual of some sort, or even drawing a picture of like, this is the place that you loved. This is the friend that you loved. And now we're going somewhere else. So kind of making a story, telling a story of what happened. And maybe that's the same visual storybook, if you will, idea, or maybe it's something different. And it can be something as simple as a white sheet of paper with some stick figures. Like it doesn't need to be anything complicated. It's really allowing space for them to say, 
to ask questions. And it sounds like your daughter, like she's already asking questions and that's pretty incredible that she's sharing like, Oh, I might not see this friend anymore. Like she's processing, she's conceptualizing, she's sharing with you and able to move through it. But a lot of kids won't, won't really do that. So kind of allowing space or creating space for it intentionally. I think it can be helpful for adults too. Um, So that's kind of the first thing I think about is how do we, help them process what's going on. And then also maybe pictures of where you're going or looking at a map or some way to think about what's to come and get excited about that and um, moving into the joy and, you know, what it might be like or making space for any fear. So this type of interaction is all about a whole range of emotion. So it isn't just wanting the good stuff. It's recognizing that there's a, there's a place for fear and sadness too. And when we share it, it actually helps it to dissipate versus keeping it inside and not thinking about it, which we think is helpful, but then it spikes in other ways or, you know, we're lashing out at somebody or we're just reacting, you know, in kids, it might look like tough behaviors. So when we make space for the fear and sadness in a really intentional way, it allows that stuff to come out in a safe space. Um, other things I think about is um, kind of a, what is it? Um, like a fix for everything or a first recommendation for everything is any one-to-one time, especially if, you know, a certain kid might be having a hard time or um, a special time, if you call it, or even if it's 10, 15 minutes, once a week, like some time that they can have that's theirs. So it's like an anchor. And I I feel like that's one of the most powerful things is just the one-on-one time, which can be easier said than done, uh, especially with multiple kids and everything going on with a move. But if there is a kind of a time to follow their lead, interact, and go for what I call sparkly-eyed moments. So the more that we fill their cup with the little moments that feel good. So if we think, okay, this kid really likes doing somersaults off the couch, couch cushions into the pillows, or um, this one really likes you know, being rolled up like a burrito in a blanket. Like it's, it can be a little thing, just something that is maintained as the same or a similar thing that they love in the different spaces. So that is another regulating thing to help kind of keep the rhythm and keep the connection and keep the anchor, like an emotional anchor, physical anchor, interactive anchor. Curious what that sounds like to you. Should I continue going? Does that feel, I have quite a few others that we could talk through. We could probably have a whole episode on transitions, but. (laughs) I actually, I just wanted to share. So in Waldorf, it's sometimes common to do something called visioning boards. And a visioning board is very similar to what you were initially talking about, Katie. So it's basically a visual guide. And basically what you would do is you would sit down, the whole family would sit down and you can do a visioning board about anything. So it could be about moving. So you could talk about what do we think the move is going to look like? Um, And everyone draws out 
and it doesn't even have to be, you know, okay, maybe the two-year-old can't do this, but the four-year-old and on could do, could do this. It doesn't have to be fancy. Um, so you could draw out what you think the move could look like, leaving your friends behind, that kind of thing. Or you could vision, do a vision board on your new life and it would be, okay, what is something you're excited about in the new location? What is something you, someone, or, so you could even vision like meeting a new friend and you could picture in your mind, what do you want this new friend to be like? You, do you want this new, you know, what will they look like? What will they want to play with you? Like all of these things. And you draw it out and you talk about it as a family and in essence, what this is, is manifestation. This is manifesting what your future will look like. Um, it could be that, or this could also be looked at as a form of prayer even. You know, you guys could turn it into like, okay, we're going to pray about our our life um, in Georgia. But it's just, it's setting up the stage for excitement and, um, you know, positive anticipation of what's to come. And like Katie said, you know, it helps, it helps regulate your emotions. You're like thinking about it. And I don't know, that's, that was one thing that, um, I thought was really cool in Waldorf. I love that Christine. And it, so a lot of what I'm looking at as a, an occupational therapist is how do we regulate the sensory world through the sensory world? So having a visual, um, it can be really dysregulating or upsetting, disorganizing when we don't have a visual. So kids are really filling their bank of visuals and experiences and memories. And if, if you say like we're moving to a different state, younger kids won't have any way to make sense of that. So it can be really confusing and the lack of understanding is really dysregulating. So when we don't understand, it's really upsetting or it's really hard to organize. So helping to have a visual or like get excited or harness those emotions that feel good can help to boost their ability to navigate the tougher ones even. So that, I mean, the multi-sensory and interaction, you're, there's such a safety in connecting with somebody around it. So even just, that's why it's like, I always say is, it does not need to be fancy or anything special. It's it's really about this, like somebody's in this with me, this big adult who seems to know what they're doing. You know, it's like they're in it with me. So I feel more safe. I feel secure. And from a sensory standpoint, that's the basis of all development and the brain functioning for learning and relating. So there's so much happening in the little moments like that, that, you know, creating that space can go a long way. And transitions are super vulnerable for kids and for anybody. I think that's something to remember. Even a transition to go eat dinner or to leave the house, like it can be really, really hard. And I work with kids with a lot of different processing differences. So that's why transitions, I feel like my toolbox for transitions and how to navigate them is like massive because I've had so many issues transitioning with kids. Like it's like trial and error and failing and like figuring out different ways for every little profile that are helpful. So uh, thinking about it as even shifting a school, it's like equivalent to having a new job with a new boss and new coworkers and a new building and trying to navigate the commute. So 
you know, a move out of state, thinking about the magnitude of that and how many little pieces can go with it as adults, it's even more so, but, um, for kids, you know, they, their world is so developing that it can feel like a lot and it can feel threatening to the little systems that are trying to understand and trying to make sense of things. So, um, the other thing I didn't mention was any way to add rhythm. And this probably is very Waldorf too. Like definitely um, yes. <laughs> songs, uh, singing, um, rhythms throughout the day. So does not need to be rigid. I always feel like rhythm is not rigid, but it's the consistency where you feel is most important, you know, like you know what seems to matter to them probably. And, um, adding any rhythms, whether it's routine, rituals, um, love rituals, which are little connecting things. Becky Bailey Conscious Discipline has a lot on that. Um, or meal times, which I know you all know all about. Um, how to make that happen. I could get some tips. And um, yeah, the rhythm can be so regulating for everybody. Yeah, so rhythm is small. Routines are are bigger and more structured and rhythm is just like the little small details throughout the day. For example, you put a candle on the table before you eat or you say a prayer before you eat or when you wake up in the morning, their clothes is already laid out. Like those are examples Mm -hmm. of rhythm. Fascinating. I I didn't know that difference technically. Yeah. 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 I I was just going to say that, um, we generally have a routine to our day, um, but um, that has to do with school, right? So when we have this kind of, it's not a schedule, but it's a it's a routine. You know, we do math first, and then we do language arts, and then we take a little break, and then we do, you know, go throughout the day. Um, and that has completely gone out the window right now because I'm just totally focused on packing. Um, so yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot going on right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I could imagine Corey. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I'd be curious, like any, well, in any ritual, like ritual things that like, I wonder if you're doing things, for you that you might not even notice, you know, it's like, and I, I agree. I feel like it's, it can be hard even for me if, if things are feeling really full or busy, it's like the first thing to go out the window is like eating meals at the times I know I need to, or not skipping things. So I think it's such a, that gap between like what we want to do or what we know is helpful and actually doing the things that are helpful. is like a whole different ball game. Yeah, that's true. I think sometimes we forget about ourselves in these big life moments because we're so focused on making sure everything runs smoothly and taking care of the family that, you know, the caregivers or, um, you know, sometimes the adult can just get left behind. So. Well, Christine, you just went through all this quite recently. <laughs> How did you navigate? Like what was helpful for you? Oh man. Yeah. And unfortunately mine was, um, not planned. So 
I, you know, yours was planned. Yours has been planned, Corey. Um, and mine was completely out of the blue, essentially. Uh, I grieved a lot. I, I grieved a lot. The fact that my kids didn't get to finish my oldest didn't get to finish his kindergarten year, never got to say goodbye to his kindergarten teacher, never saw his friends again. And so we had to really do talk a lot about, yeah, we're not going back to that house where you're not going back to your school, especially the school that we had already decided he was going to go to. He had already been enrolled in the Waldorf elementary school there. And so we had to talk a lot about that. Um, If I remember correctly, when my husband went back to pack the house, we did a FaceTime where he got to see everything and, you know, he asked him to go into the different rooms and we showed him the different rooms. Um, We would talk a lot about the house and like, oh, do you remember the stairs? Do you remember the hallway that you used to play? Um, I would take old videos and pictures and just show him oh, do you remember you would run up and down this hallway with a football and like play with the football kind of thing? Um, And he had one friend in particular that he was really bummed that he was leaving. And so we FaceTimed that friend a couple of times. And and then it kind of just dissipated. And he met new friends at his new location, new school, and where we live here. And he forgot about that friend, to be honest. Um... And we've talked actually recently about maybe writing him a letter, but for the most part, he, he every once in a while he'll say like, oh, I miss the, I miss the snow in Chicago. I like the cold in Chicago. He doesn't like the heat in Texas. He loves the cold. Um, but for the most part, he's, I think that we are over that transition and that hump and he's very much established here and like enjoys his life here now. So, but I I would say it took a full year. Um, So this idea of like, oh, you know, it'll be fast. My kid will be over it in a few months. I don't think that that's true because within the span of a year, there are so many different changes that happen. There's the seasons, there's um, the transitions from school where when you're in school or when you're not, or, you know, there's a lot. And so I think it takes like a full year. I love Christine that you did all the almost like joy processing or the memories. I f- I feel like so often we're in our world we are um, like you don't want to talk about all the good stuff that happened because it might upset kids or it might like you know create some emotion. So kind of like really pushing into it and giving space for that. That's pretty cool. Like witnessing their experience, witnessing his experience in this unique way like just the things that he liked to do. I bet he felt so seen. So. (laughs) Okay. Let's move on from moving. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So like I said at the beginning, my husband and I are um, new to this idea. Both of us, I don't know. I am more sold, I think, than he is. Um, on the idea of um, respectful parenting, but I think, um, well, I'm curious to know how you think um, we could come to this together and sort of transition into this together if we haven't been there before, especially since we have um, some older kids, you know, we have a 
10-year-old and almost nine-year-old, a four-year-old and almost two-year-old. So that's a, a fairly wide range, but there's also, you know, an older kid or a couple older kids who have, who we have not practiced this um, entirely with. I will say that I think that there are things that we do along these lines, um, but not like a hundred percent. Oh, such a big question. And I feel like one of the biggest questions that I receive is working with families because we all have such different experiences coming into being with kids. And it is a really sensitive loaded topic that, uh, you know, and I think it, it says how much it matters to people, how sensitive and loaded it can be because, um, you know, everybody has so much love for their kids. Not every, everybody I talk to, fortunately. <laughs> um, but, um, so when there is like doubt or wondering or wanting somebody else to be on the same page, I think first thinking about it from a place of like, instead of, you know, like you need to do this this way, or this is the right way to do it. Like here, let me just show you how, and you can be right like me, <laughs> you know, like as tempting as that can be to be right or be like, know the way. I think there's so many different ways. And, you know, with kids, every, every child, is so different and I say as unique every nervous system is as unique as a fingerprint so there are it's it's not black and white and there are situations that you know none of this might feel effective so you resort to other ideas or other ways of doing things or things that you might not want to practice but so kind of first coming at it as like yeah I don't I'm not necessarily coming at this from a place of like I'm the self-righteous one that knows all the right things, um, which can be challenging. But um, then thinking about, break it down into different interaction styles. So there is authoritarian, which is this power control, kind of my way or the highway, compliance driven over everything. So emotion is not uh, part of the story. So this might be if, you know, if you had a, if a one of, you know, if we have our kid that is not feeling well or doesn't want to go to school and authoritarianism might think, you know, it doesn't matter how you feel, just go, you know, put on your clothes, you're going, get in the car or there'll be punishment. There'll be wrath suffered if, you know, you don't do it. So it's kind of pushing down any sign of emotion and compliance matters overall. So like doing what we're told, doing what's expected and, the adult is the power figure. So a lot of our world is shaped this way. You think about employers and the corporate world, and it's all about, you know, if you can just get all the work done, it doesn't really matter what you're going through personally or emotionally or on the inside. If you get all the work done, you are praised, you're rewarded, you make all the money, like you have the biggest house and the shiniest car and your life is good. You must be happy. Like that's how our society views things often. So the other side of things might look like permissiveness. So that's where there aren't really any boundaries. So kind of loosey-goosey um, emotions rule the roof. So emotions are the whole story. And we, we can all be parts of all of these. So another disclaimer is nobody fits cleanly into any of these boxes. We likely fluctuate all throughout the day, even in an hour. So 
the goal is to be as consistent as can be and repair when there are mistakes or when, you know, you flop toward a side that you don't like as much. But permissiveness is like, if that child were feeling sick, then it would be like, we'll never go to school. You know, you, you can stay home for three weeks or, you know, maybe we won't, we won't go like ever if you're feeling off. So while emotion is the whole story, it's not really allowing space for emotional processing or like figuring out what's going on. You know, what is the root of the emotion? What's the root of not wanting to go? Like, is this a real need? And maybe the school isn't a fit for them um, or helping them to feel empowered in that environment. So uh, that can actually like spike anxiety for a lot of us little or the little ones because they don't feel ready to be fully in control. So if you have a four-year-old that that um, is having a hard time and then uh, as adults, we're kind of like, oh, you know, we won't go or we won't do that or it's okay, it's okay. Like you don't need to do that. It actually can spike or make things harder on the inside for our kids because then they feel like, oh shoot, I'm in control. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) So nobody's in control. Like that can feel scary. So then the middle ground is authoritative. So that's kind of clear, compassionate limits or limits that make sense. Um, Helping them understand what's going on in the world. So this might look like, oh, if you're feeling off, then be like, oh, like, where are you feeling it? Is it in your, in your stomach? Is it your throat? Is it um, some fear about going to school? Like what's going or what's going on? And then having space for it. So it's emotion is part of the story, not the whole story. So that might sound like, oh, like I remember, you know, yesterday you were feeling some fear about this new teacher and um, you came home and you had a great day. So like helping them to make sense of like, oh, this is fear and it's okay to be afraid at times, you know, it's a new school or it's new people or these are like, yeah, that makes sense. You're afraid of this. I might be too. I remember when I was little and I had a new uh, school and I felt nervous to go in. So it's, there's a connection around the emotion that gives them the safety security from the inside to know, oh, I can trust what I feel. It's not that you know, they reject it totally. It's not that everybody will be flooded and panicking and my emotion will dominate the whole dynamic. It's that, oh, emotions, part of the story, I can move through it and I can share it with my person or my people. And people are generally safe and supportive and help me realize when my emotion is getting the best of me, if you will, or like my emotion feels so big that it's kind of skewing my perspective a little bit. So if I'm thinking about partners involved in parenting, I think starting with those interaction styles and exploring like, okay, where are we right now on these, on this spectrum? We didn't go over neglect because I'm assuming most people listening are not in that camp of neglect. Um, (laughs) Probably preaching to the choir, but that would be the, like, you know, never around and not interested and uh, needless to say. But but it's important because some of 
you listening, for example, might have experienced that as a kid. So the neglect box is in there where, you know, that was where we had tons and tons of independence, parents not around very much, and um, didn't have anybody to rely on or didn't have anyone to go to in need. So you can develop a system to take care of yourself and to not ever show emotion and to not express anything and to never need help. So there's different, of course, there's, again, a mix of everything, but starting with that and then exploring, like, what did you experience in your life? Whether it was from, again, teachers, coaches, obviously in the home, like in in childhood, from grandparents, like what was the norm interaction? What tended to dominate? Or was it bouncing back and forth in a way that was confusing? And um, I think this is really common because we're not taught to navigate emotions. So then we can bounce between permissiveness or explosivity and power control. So... um, starting with some type of type of framework and asking like, how did that feel for you as a kid? Or some people might say, Oh, I was spanked and hit and I turned out great. And that's the way that I want to be with my kids. So it can be really, again, sensitive and challenging because there can be a lot of protective mechanisms built up around the, the things that we experienced and the familiarity. It feels safe because it's familiar And again, we know what to visualize. So visualizing other options can feel really dysregulating because we don't understand it. So the next thing is really it takes one parent that's healthy or aware enough of honoring, making space for emotion, making it part of the story, you know, allowing your own emotional world to show up at times. I think that's something that can be big with partners. It's like, how are we creating space? For example, men are stereotypically wired to be strong and not show emotion and be an anchor and be a rock. And I realized in my own marriage that I was like, I'm not really making that much space for him to be upset or show emotion. And I have since, and it's really changed things, but, um, thinking about how we're like, is emotion part of the story in our relationship or is it not in the story or it's in the story for me, but not you, you know, so can be a lot of humble pie. I think looking at that, but at least for me. Um, so that's one thing, like really, if we have one person that can make space for emotion and what's going on underneath, that can be super powerful. And, um, Anything else? Is that helpful or? Yeah. So um, how would you, would you introduce this to older kids? Would you like have a conversation with them or would you just kind of start shifting your own um, behavior? So that's super insightful. I love that question. Um, It's really interesting. Um, One, I think that, it's shows a lot of like vulnerability to do that, to have a conversation and to have like a family meeting or um, just the act of doing that and putting it out there and saying like, Hey, this is how I, you know, I 
believed in the past or here's what I'm thinking now, like just doing that. How incredible. I just think as a kid, like, wow, my parents are really thinking about this and maybe they won't think it's cool or interesting and they'll, you know, be annoyed. <laughs> but I think now looking back, like that would be so cool. Um, so yeah, I would say absolutely, especially if that's your instinct and it feels like it's this intentional thing. It makes a we around what's happening. And if we're modeling a space that like we want, vulnerability is actually how we connect or how we attach. So attachment is rooted in need in some way. So attachment is rooted in emotional, emotional responding. So it's like, why do we talk about emotions so much? I hear myself saying that word so many times this episode, but it's because it really is what drives the whole, I would say, wellness of our ability to navigate life in a way that feels good. So if there's some, I think even at age, you know, 50, how cool would it be if your parent came to you and said, hey, like, there's some things I did in the past and here's how, here's what I'm working on now. Just modeling that vulnerability, modeling that I, there's some things I would shift or there's some things that I would like to do differently. Or um, I wonder how that felt for you in the past when I did X, Y, Z, or um, taking it less, like it's less about good, bad, right, or wrong. And more about we're in this together. We're messy, imperfect, fallible humans how can we put that on the table and say, yeah, sometimes I can be self-righteous and condescending and shaming. And that is something I'm working on. Those are all things that I'm working on. And I wonder how that's impacting you. Like, I wonder how that feels for you when I yelled or raised my voice or when we were running out of time and I, you know, got flustered or threw something or grabbed you a little bit harder than I wanted to, or, the super painful things that we want to just not talk about and not put out there, but it's, it's, it can become an opportunity for connection in such a deep way. And um, one thing about that too, Corey, it brings up is almost every day I hear is people that are, you know, something really hard happens, then it's like, well, maybe I shouldn't be a parent or maybe I, I got, you know, this kid would be better with somebody else. Like these super raw, vulnerable thoughts about these dark thoughts that come up or like, maybe this isn't meant for me or um, I'm failing them or so like how, when we share that, it's like our shame, the shame tapes that go on that we all have in different ways as humans on this, in this world and sharing that with with other with others or with them or saying like goodness I feel like I failed you in that moment and I know that you know I know it isn't true here I am you know we have a we have a home we have food we I I care about you I love you but I wonder how that felt for you when that happened like kind of putting it off um depersonalizing it and just making it a human thing versus like an us thing or a you thing or um yeah so I would say introducing kind of here's here are ways that I would have handled this in the past. Here's how I'm hoping to handle it. Like, what do you guys think? Any thoughts or, yeah, I would love to hear any thoughts. You probably know what would be most helpful for them, but. 
those are some main ideas that I think about. Christine, do you have anything to add to that? My little hamster wheel is turning. Um, (laughs) Oh, man. I think that, yeah, definitely having a conversation with them about it. And then something else you could say is asking them for your help to keep you accountable. So, and this is something that I've started. I wish I had started much sooner, but anytime... I am not regulated and I react with a really, and usually my reactions are stern voices. So like, I just sound like an ugly, scary mama. Um, my kids have permission to tell me, I'm going to add that crispy word though. Um, my kids have permission to tell me, mom, you're getting real, you're getting a little crispy there. Or, you know, your tone of voice is, is really strong. And sometimes they've, they've like actually told me, oh, I really don't like the way you said that to me. Um, And so to give them permission to say, hey, I think that you're out of line. Um, Yeah, so for them to keep us accountable too. I don't know how that would work, Katie, as far as like brain development, if that's appropriate or not. But I mean... Yeah, it sounds a lot like, I mean, I just think about them in adult relationships, navigating friendships, navigating their intimate relationship, like being able to say, hey, like, that's not really a helpful way to communicate, right? And if we're thinking about preparing them for life, and as as a parent or adult, that takes a lot of vulnerability on your part, or like not being on a high horse, if you will, because we're programmed to be in control. And even me, it's like, I feel it pop up that urge to just like control at times or um, so just to be able to pause and move through whatever initial reaction might be there, especially early on, like, Whoa, don't talk back to me or don't like, it can feel like an attack probably early on. So yeah, it sounds like a lot of modeling self-regulation for you, for, th- for them that you're modeling, like when somebody gives us feedback, even if it comes out messy, it's like, is there something to look at? Is there something I can take away from this and use and move on? So yeah, it seems incredible, Christine. Okay. So, um, I want to ask you, how or or is this style of parenting based in science and how and if you could explain why however i also want to add to this um how long has this style of parenting been around um and has it played out through a couple generations (laughs) and then on top of that maybe this is too much for one little bit but um how are kids like that have been able to have conversations like this with authority figures, you know, how are they functioning in a world that isn't necessarily set up like that? Like in a work environment, like if I were to go to a boss in a work environment and be like, 
hey, so I didn't really like the way you said that. It could go okay, or it could be me losing my job. So I'm curious how this plays out. Like at some point, do you tell your kid, listen, you can say this to me, but you can't really say this to, you know, your professor or... Yeah, that's a great question. So I know there's a lot in that. Sorry. There is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Answer the second I, question first, and then we'll go back to it when it if it's based on science and if we've had a few generations to have it play out. Were you going to say something, Christine? No, I was just going to say I think this might be the last question. Okay. Yes. So. Um, we, so first of all, thinking about, okay, so you said answer the second part first. So like, how does this play out in real life? How does this play out in the real world? All right. For adults. For adults. So I don't know when exactly it started, if you will, as far as a like year or a time frame. Um, but it's actually when we think about human development. So there's a book called first feelings. It's really incredible. Um, all about how the ways that we used to learn to regulate emotion when we were living more in village like support systems. So we had four attachment figures for every child, for example. So there a child could go to, you know, mom, dad, grandma, auntie. Uh, there were always four, probably a minimum four people around that they could go to and get emotional support connection. Adults were getting co-regulation from each other. So they were getting support from one another and that's what they needed to, to be able to function in the, in the village. That was how our whole world, um, our whole community was like able to survive and move through these really challenging times. So now flash forward, here we are living in these isolated lives where we have jobs in corporate America and for better and worse, I think it takes a lot of thinking about, wow, do we want to be part of that world? Like, one, yes, it does prepare. So when we're thinking about kids and people that have been raised with the type of interaction that they, they know what they feel on the inside. So when we know what we feel, we know how to move through it. So it isn't that kids aren't learning like you know to read the room for example they they actually are because they can read themselves super clearly it's it's like a crystal clear and of course we're all human so it's probably not crystal clear but understanding enough to know that oh like i feel xyz and i know what to do about it so whether it's a sensation or an emotion there's an ability to understand how to meet the environment needs, no matter what situation we're in. So the whole idea behind emotional regulation or sensory regulation or helping the nervous system be flexible and adaptable and be able to move through things is to be able to shift and adapt in different environments. So Yes, absolutely. I think there's a misconception that this creates kind of like, you know, kind of like snowflake, woo-woo little kids that are adults that can't, you know, get through the day and are having a really hard time. But it's actually 
the opposite in that we are forming adults who can be adaptable and assertive and know that if you have a boss that's totally overriding your needs as a human, that maybe it's not super healthy and maybe that's not the environment that you want to be in. So it might be more difficult probably to like internalize things and just show up. But the idea again is that emotion's part of the story, not the whole story. So if we have kids that are learning to kind of stuff everything down or repress things, it tends to create adults that have different forms of addiction, whether that is um, high achieving, workaholism, I'll do everything perfectly so I don't upset anybody and I develop worth, or um, substance use and having a hard time with just getting through the day. So when we help kids move through discomfort and help them experience joy and authenticity and know what that feels like, it allows them to have a meaning in life that like they have inherent worth. So they can do things that they really want to, like they can create, they can have a shifted focus to, I don't just want to have a job. I want to benefit the world in some way. So it allows them to have perspective taking. It allows them to have the uh, ability to to look beyond themselves because they're set. They're pretty set. They feel pretty secure. So then they can say, "Oh, what can I do that could benefit this community? What could I do uh, to to better the world or cultivate a world I want to create?" Does that answer the question? To me, it make it you make it sound like we give kids the tools to access their inner knowing and to trust their intuition. So they become adults that have this, that can follow this inner knowing. And that is such a vague term. I think it's, it's hard to, you know, really pinpoint what is our inner knowing because it's so different for each of us, but I think each of us actually knows what it is. We just don't always follow it um, depending on how we were raised or, you know, the way society is. We, we don't listen to it. I don't know. That was just one of the, one thought that I had. That's such a good point, Christine. And I can speak to that personally just with, like, I think before I was kind of like achieving, striving, but not really like, yeah, I wanted to support people or help people. But I think getting caught up in this, like doing, 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 uh, like kind of soldiering on in a way that I couldn't fully authentically show up for other people. Like I, I was living in a way that didn't really match being able to deeply connect with others or deeply have that relationship, which in this model, it's believing that the relationship is the core of evolution and humanity and all these gifts that we have gotten away from in so many ways. So we're kind of looking at the the old pieces of the ways that we are designed to develop through relationship and pulling in parts, trying to navigate this world that we're in now. And, um, yeah, it's such a good question. I like that conversation. Okay. So, um, can you now touch on the 
is this space in science and um, what that science is, if it is. <laughs> yeah. So there is, um, goodness, all kinds of different evidence or science-based things out there. What I would suggest as kind of core science for anybody who's interested, uh, The Whole Brain Child is a really good read. I think that the whole book is audio on YouTube, or it used to be. So that really looks at the, the different brain states that we have and how it shows up in behavior. So are we in survival brain, this primitive brain state where we might be in fight, flight, freeze, we're just doing, doing, doing kind of like the, it can show up all different ways in adults, whether that is like flight response might look like chronic procrastination or hiding or avoiding. Um, chronic fight response might look like, uh, like constantly being on the go, like being super um, achieving, but actually it's kind of rooted in the survival mode. So um, anywhere from that to, the prefrontal cortex, which as Christine mentioned earlier, it's that part of the brain where we start to develop logic and reasoning. And kids are developing these parts of the brain that are uh, able to develop impulse control and uh, respond versus react and think and learn. And often we push those thinking learning states earlier and earlier. So there can be a lot of holes in the sensory motor development and embodied world of exploring and playing and all that they learn about academics through just being outside or playing or, um, you know, they're learning about weight, they're learning about volume, they're learning the concepts of mathematics all in the through play. So like Finland, for example, doesn't teach reading or writing until like age seven or eight or all these different areas or even I think Waldorf is like that too with yeah. Teaching yeah, it later, uh, yeah. recognizing that, oh, this isn't so helpful for the brain because if we try to teach things before kids are ready, and that's like the same with expectations of expecting them to self-regulate, expecting them to self-soothe, when actually the brain isn't ready to do that. The brain needs thousands of interactions of co-regulation or soothing with another adult before kids can internalize the ability to do that on their own. So they really physically don't have the brain capacity to go in a different room and calm down. They'll internalize it, they'll impress it or repress it or act out further because they're they're saying like, hey, I, I need some co-regulation. This isn't working out. So the ways that we're shaping these moments, so the tough moments or when they're having a hard time actually become ways that we're developing the brain and the body and helping them organize everything from the inside out. Do you want to add anything, Corey? Uh, no, I was just going to say, um, well, I was going to ask if you have any um, suggestions for resources excuse me, resources. So books, podcasts, um, I guess bloggers or Instagram accounts, you know, places that people could find information. I know you said one book, but any others? Oh, so many. And Christine, I would love your thoughts. I know, you know, I think you in practice right now, especially moving through this for quite a few years, you know, I'd almost default to yours. I have a 
list of a book list um, that I share with my email list every once in a while with tons of books when I was, I used to be a huge reader and um, I still like to read, but I'm not as up on all the latest and greatest reads anymore. So yeah, I would love to hear yours, Christine. I think for anyone, The Whole Brain Child is where I recommend people start. I think it also depends on what you're looking for. Are you looking for practical application or are you looking for like science-based? If you're looking for practical application, then Janet Lansbury, um, she has several books as well as uh, Kim John Payne. Mm. Um, And he has an incredible podcast called Simplicity Parenting. It is, it's like 15 minutes long. Every episode is super short, very easy to listen to. And his voice is incredibly soothing. And yeah, I mean, it's so easy and you can come away in 15 minutes with actionable steps for how to manage different situations. If you're looking for more science-based stuff, rest, play, grow is dense, but it, really gets into the nitty gritty of, you know, the way the brain develops and how that affects kids and the way they grow and how important rest is, how important play is. I mean, it's, I would say that one, um, oh my gosh, I'm looking over at my bookshelf actually right now. A kid's book I love is, um, the rabbit listened. It's so good. It's good. I think even for adults, like it makes me cry every time I read it in adult relationships. Like I wish I had more rabbits often. (laughs) We all need to listen. Like it's all about the, like all these other animals were trying to do all these things when so-and-so was upset. And then the rabbit just was there and like kind of says it's basically co-regulation in a simple book way um i also love beyond behaviors mona delahook for science base she's a um a psychologist i believe and knows a lot about looking at the behavior and like what's going on under the iceberg of behavior so if they're showing an external behavior like hitting or um crying like what's going on underneath what could be cooking under there and um kind of hate the word debunk, but debunks a lot of diagnoses like oppositional defiant disorder or um, things that we might label kids as without really knowing what might be under the iceberg. So it's still super new. Like while this is rooted in like the biology of humanity, it's, it's, there was a time where behaviorism really took over. And so it's kind of this paradigm of looking at behavior and either positively reinforcing it or negatively reinforcing it. And then that's how we ship behavior. And now we're, we've moved into this era of getting back to those original biological tendencies while also having the science and the nervous system and the brain understanding to explain it and help understand what's going on. So her book is really great and also I think she has a new one I haven't read it but it's brain body parenting something like that body brain something like that body brain brain body parenting Mona Delahook I 
think Dan Siegel also has another one about positive discipline or something like that. There's no drama discipline. Also parenting from the inside out. Yes. That, um, yeah. I like that one. It's cool. Um, for podcasts, also um, Janet Lansbury has one on Ruffle. Oh, yes. And she has more and yeah. more uh, people on that are really specialists in certain areas. So there were some, like her books, No Bad Kids or Elevating Child Care. The ones mm-hmm. Christine mentioned have a lot of practical examples. And it's really great for kind of the basic interactive stuff. Um, and her podcast, it seems like I haven't listened in a, quite a while, but it seems like she has more and more people on there that I'm fascinated by and love to listen. So, Yeah, lately she started doing recordings of actual sessions with parents so you can hear a parent's real problem and then she will walk the parent through how to navigate that mm-hmm. um that that those are really helpful and then i'm actually going to add on here carrie conti i don't know if you guys are familiar with her but she's not um she's more for adults but adults with kids and she just has she has no books this is just like an email listserv that you sign up for but she basically will hold every once in a while throughout the year these clarity sessions in which she will ask you to ask you really specific questions you'll journal um if you're parenting with a significant other you know you guys will talk about this together really helps you focus on what are the important aspects of your parenting how is it that you want to raise your kids? I mean, like really big picture questions mm. and then breaks it down to how you can get there. Um, I really love her. So I think that's it though. <laughs> I have one more. I just thought of it's okay not to share. I, I was going to say that. Yeah, it's literally, I looked over it there. Ages ago. I actually think I have your copy, Katie. <laughs> sorry yeah that's okay it's okay not to go up it's okay to go up the slide is another one but yeah I love it's like super practical and super aligned with all the nervous system brain stuff even though she doesn't fully go into that it's like right on par and a very accessible like I just love her writing and then there's a sibling one is it siblings without rivalry Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. If you have siblings, I highly recommend that one too. That's another really good real life application one. I'm writing these down so I don't forget them. Kind of a library of recommendations here. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be our longest show notes yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to have Corey's to cut like, you guys off because otherwise we'll just list things all night. Corey's like, next time I might not ask that and I liked how at first I was like, I don't really know. I'm not really, I'm not really sure. <laughs> all the books, every single one. <laughs> yeah. Just read them all. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh man. I thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. This complex topic that I am really into. So I appreciate the conversation. We'll see if listeners, if this is a topic they're interested in, then maybe we can have you back to talk a little bit, expand more on some of 
the other details. We had wanted to jump into some of your health journey and talk about women and stuff like that, but we'll save that for another time. Oh, that's another great conversation. Yeah. I know. Next time. Another time. Whether Um, I'm off. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, But can you tell us for now, where can listeners find you? How can they connect with you? Do you work with individuals? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So on Instagram is where I am most of the time, um, at Thriving Littles. And uh, my email is hello at thrivinglittles.com. I do do uh, intensive one-to-one coaching right now. And we're kind of taking a hiatus from programs right now until probably fall. So typically I have a program called the Meltdown Method and uh, some group programs. So if you're on the email list or on Instagram, you'll see that. But yes, I do uh, connect with people one-to-one in a pretty intensive way for people who are interested in wanting to dive into all this. So, yeah. I've taken her Meltdown Method course. It's very good. (laughs) So glad you liked it. It's been revised a few times since then. Goodness. Wow. That's awesome. All right. So before we sign off, um, I'm going to share something that is completely off topic. And if you go to my blog, you can find <laughs> you can find this recipe for um, a loaded chocolate milk, which maybe will help your kids to get enough fat in their brain. And I don't know. I was trying to connect it and it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, don't forget to review us on iTunes. Thank you, everybody, for doing that. Um, we really appreciate it. And it makes us really happy when we get to read a new one. Um And I guess that's it. So thanks so much, Katie. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at nourishthelittles and online at nourishthelittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at fornutrientsake and online at fornutrientsake.com. Follow us on Instagram at modernancestralmamas. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It should not be intended as medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.